Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lee Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. This week, we'll be continuing to examine the impacts of ageism. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, please stop now, go back and listen. It offers a helpful context for understanding why we should all be personally invested in dismantling ageism at every age and stage of life, with a particular emphasis on the younger and older members of society. I'm glad you highlighted the point that ageism is actually probably the only ism that all of us will experience if we're lucky enough to get old, right? There's nothing else you can really say that about. So we should all care about ageism. And I actually think that's one of the strengths in terms of the bent that we take with our advocacy, right? Is that, yes, this is something that affects so many different people, but we can see that as a strength. So this is something that everyone should be able to get behind because all of us know someone who's older. All of us love someone who's older. All of us, if we're lucky, will be someone who's older at some point. And so I think leveraging that universality is actually really important. That was Lena Macaroon, ex-officio board member with the American Geriatric Society. Lena is a geriatrician and research fellow and sees patients at the VA Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion in Pittsburgh. And she has spent much of her professional life getting a comprehensive understanding of how the structures that surround us as we age determine our experience of aging itself. I think for those interested in social determinants of health, you see those things compounded over a lifetime when you treat older adults. Those social factors that influence people's health only go on to kind of become more and more important as someone ages. And so that also was something that drew me to taking care of older adults because I saw how critical it was to kind of address those factors. There's a famous Mahatma Gandhi quote that states, The true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. Based on the sad and sobering reality that in America, at least one in 10 adults age 65 and older will experience some form of abuse within a given year, and at least one in seven children have experienced child abuse or neglect in the past year, it's clear that the United States isn't measuring up. Part of that is because of a widespread societal failure to embrace the process of aging. Trish D'Antonio, Vice President of Policy and Professional Affairs for the Gerontological Society of America, works on a structural level to ensure systems of support that enable individuals to lead meaningful lives as they age. She spent the early part of her career working as a pharmacist, and she sees the ways unchecked ageism negatively impacted the health and well-being of older adults. Trish told me about the work the Gerontological Society of America is doing in partnership with the Frameworks Institute to first study and then shift the discourse around aging in America. This initial research was started in 2014. The thing that was most interesting of this is that 
we learned that the public didn't think much of aging. It's just not something that's in their conscience. Whereas, you know, advocates and, and those working in aging, right, that we embrace aging and everybody else is pushing aging away, right? We're battling aging. It's the battle that we talk about. Battling against anything inevitable is painful, demoralizing, and anger-inducing. What if there were a different way? The more that people start to recognize how they can, how they can really think about their implicit biases about aging and about how they can think a little bit differently about that, it's really going to make a difference. It's just going to make a difference in so many places because aging affects us all. We have a colleague that has a button and it's aging. So cool. Everybody's doing it. I find it incredibly comforting that we're all aging. In fact, I see aging itself as a great equalizer. We may all be doing it differently, but we're all doing it. But I think one of the barriers to seeing that reality reflected is that by and large, our society separates people based on age. We're a highly age-segregated society. So even for starting school, you know, we start school with folks within 14 or 15 months of our age, depending on your region and what the parameters are. But basically, people are same age. And then depending on when you start school, that could be as early as two or three, you spend the vast majority of your day only with people in your age cohort. Then you enter the workforce. And for the most part, you're with peers of your age cohort as you like work up the ladder. And then you end up living in long-term care. You're with people of your age cohort. Now there, you actually can get like a 30-year age range. How many connections as a society are we missing because of how age segregated we are. And then why? Why do we start school like kindergarten at five? A better marker would be some sort of test of your educational, you know, your abilities, right? Like some sort of cognitive test would be better for when you should start school, but it's easier to do age. Why can we drive at 16? Does some magical dexterity thing happen at 16? No, it's just an easy marker. Same with voting at 18, same with drinking at 21. Same with 65, you know, all these like age numbers, if you can even kind of start noticing just how many things have age markers in them. And I would say as an ageism activist, that all of them are ageist. That was Kyrie Carpenter, one of the co-founders of Old School, a clearinghouse for anti-ageism resources. In addition to fighting ageism through resource collection, dissemination, and creation, Curie also actively works to shift the tragedy-only narrative of aging and dementia. And she's right. No other forms of segregation are sweepingly sanctioned the way age segregation seems to be. Yet it's interwoven into the constructs of culture to separate people, both in deed and in word. There's certain language we can use that unintentionally really others people. And othering can promote different types of discriminatory or biased mentalities. So, for example, most people use terms like seniors or elderly. So things like seniors and elderly, like those are terms that we actually try to avoid because it makes it seem like this is a different group. They go by a different name that, you know, wouldn't really apply to me. Whereas using the term older adult, which is really what we prefer in the, you know, the reframed language, lets you know that it's like this is just a different stage of this continuum of life and adulthood that we're all on and that we will all reach at some point.
In addition to separating people out based on age, we can and do all too often single people out with overtly ageist comments, often ill-concealed as humor. Here is Teresa Reed, founder of Aging for Life, whose perspective on the impact of ageism throughout the life course has been enriched by her previous work helping to establish and then run the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, the Chicago Children's Advocacy Center, and having chaired her county's chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. It's become normal, but it's not okay to denigrate an entire group of people that includes yourself (laughs) also. From birthday cards to Botox, American society seems to be denigrating and rejecting aging. And yet. I love that idea of if you're lucky, then you're going to become older. But I think it's also helpful to think about how different we become when we get older, because we have you know, are different trajectories as we age. And my life has been, you know, a whirlwind of experiences. Your life has been a whirlwind of experiences and no two people have had the same experiences. So basically every day that they're alive, they're becoming more and more and more unique. And so when you talk about all 80-year-olds being alike or something like that. It's just not true. When you see one 80-year-old, you've seen one 80-year-old. That's what the famous geriatric quote is, geriatrician quote is. That was Ryan Backer, co-creator of Old School, an anti-ageism clearinghouse. Ryan is an age activist striving to undo ageism within an intersectional framework. They aim to eradicate ageism along with white supremacy, gender bias, ableism, body shaming, homophobia, classism, and all other forms of oppression. One thing to come out of my conversation with Ryan was the deepening of the realization that age doesn't tell us anything about a person except where they are in relation to when they were born. All of us have things we used to do that we can't or don't do anymore based on where we are in our life course and things we'll experience in the future that we have yet to experience at our particular age and stage of life. And that's true no matter how old or how young we are. When you've met one 80-year-old, you've met one 80-year-old. And when you've met one five-and-three-quarter-year-old, you've met one five-and-three-quarter-year-old. Talia, what's the funnest thing, would you say, in your life right now? What's the thing that you just are, like, super excited about? Birthday parties, playing school, doing grades, playing on the playground, that sort of stuff. What aren't you allowed to do now that you're looking forward to doing when you get older? I'm looking forward to learning how to ski. Is there anything that you miss about that you used to get to do or used to when you were younger than you are now that you that you can't do now that you miss? Yeah, I really, really miss 
having, well, this is something that I can only do when Hannah's young, to hold Hannah as a baby. That was Talia Kaplan, a student, a gymnast, a daughter, a sister, and a huge proponent of intergenerational relationships. Talia was five and three quarters years old at the time of our interview. She's six now. Hannah is her younger sister. You'll know if you've ever held or even hugged anyone and felt that genuine human connection, that intimacy, love, and empathy dispel the barriers between ourselves and others. And it's the barrier of depersonalization that exists at the root of every ism. If you want to evolve beyond ageism, the surest way to do that is to connect with the person underneath the age, a practice that can begin with yourself. What the research has shown us is that if we make people aware of their implicit bias, that starts to create the change. Now, I think when we talk about ageism, it's probably one of the few accepted biases that we not only externally think about, but we internalize. And we have evidence that shows that if we make people aware of that implicit bias, that's the first step in starting to change. That was Trish D'Antonio. Here is Mia Mullen from Leading Age, an organization that has a vision of an America free from ageism. The biggest takeaway that I have learned from this journey and also the journey of diversity, equity, and inclusion is the importance of self-reflection and setting a, a commitment to truly educating yourself. And also, I am a constellation of thoughts. So thinking about all of the ideas, perceptions, biases that you hold within and doing a regular check-in with yourself to ensure that you are, we're always projecting. So it's not that you're not projecting, but to ensure that you are not reinforcing fear or ideas or perceptions that do not serve you or the people in your community. And so the education piece and the awareness piece is a really big piece to lean into. And what we have learned from that realm of work is that often people don't, ne they don't necessarily see that as active work, but it is when you take the time to build your own awareness, it does change you. And so it's a good place to spend some time. As the Associate Director of Strategic Initiatives, Mia is responsible for managing the day-to-day -day activities of the Executive Office, as well as the development and leadership of organization-wide initiatives addressing the effectiveness, results, and internal culture of leading age. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, 
as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. If you're looking to reflect on your own biases around internalized ageism, here are some questions to consider. Do you tell people your true age and or birth year? Or do you shy away from the subject? Maybe you're someone who outright lies about the length of time you've been alive. There's a video from a woman, Emily Gorley, who has a Be Bold, Claim Old is her campaign. And so she'll go to events with stickers that you write your age on and stick it on you so that then everyone just has it on them you know, as a way of claiming your age. And so that's the whole thing is like Be Bold, Claim Old, which I think definitely has merit and is a great part of changing the stereotype is embracing it and is taking the charge out of it. I know Ryan likes to ask people what their birth year is versus what their age is. Because that actually does give us more information. Like the year that you were born informs the way the world was when you were born, what the world was like when your formative experiences happened, what major world events you've lived through, at what point in your development. Like that actually does give us a lot of information. And it's consistent throughout your life rather than being this thing where you move in and out of power and you move in and out of. I think I like both of those. I I like the birth year more because I think it gets underneath that we already have so many stigmas and stereotypes. And so it's like a good way of circumventing the assumption we would have about certain ages. Yeah. <laughs> that first. I was born in 1986. I'm always going to have been born in 1986. <laughs> that is something I can hold on to and it can be a part of me and I can be proud of it. I can celebrate it. And you know, there's going to be times in my life where it's easier to celebrate and harder to celebrate because of the stereotypes. But it is me, whereas, yeah, 34 is a passing, it's one year of it, you know, then also you don't have to worry about, you can, also the birth year lets you detach from the number, if you mm-hmm. could actually, if you're just getting in the habit of telling people your birth year, you might forget what age you are, and I don't think that would be a bad thing. I had heard um, at a conference uh, from Saging, Saging International Conference, and that was, what a great idea, like, not asking people how old they are, but asking, how many years of life experience do you have? Isn't that nice? Yeah. It's like, right, exactly. How many years of life experience do you have? I have this idea in my head that the world that we share our ages is the world I want. I like to not be ageless, but ageful. Like I want to be loved for my 41-year-old self right now and my 89-year-old self, hopefully, in however many years. and instead of avoiding that reality, but have that be like this important piece of who I am is how many years I've lived and how many years, you know, and what that experience affords me. People will say that they'll say age is just a number of thinking that they're being anti-ageist when actually there is a very powerful component to claiming how long you've been on this earth. And saying age is just a number is denying that or saying that someone is ageless because you don't want to look at them aging. You know, people say ageless thinking the same thing, that it's anti-ageist when in actuality, it's just 
reinforcing all the ways that we avoid talking about or thinking about or experiencing aging. We do avoid talking about, thinking about, and experiencing aging. In fact, as I was preparing for this episode, I was hyper-attuned to all the ageist jokes on TV, comments in the media, and pejorative things people said in the course of everyday conversation about getting older. And yet, we're all getting older, and as people age, the vast majority of them say they're happier than they used to be. In fact, according to several surveys, adults in their 60s, 70s, and 80s were more likely to report feeling calm, optimistic, cheerful, and full of life, and less hopeless, restless, nervous, or sad than those in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Seemingly paradoxically, one technique that can help people overcome their own internalized ageism is to actively imagine themselves getting older. Ashton Applewhite, who wrote This Chair Rocks, one of the things that she suggests, and I think this is just brilliant, is try to um, age project yourself, like try to role play into an older version of yourself and imagine what that is. Because part of what ageism does, is it's an ism. So it just robs, you know, individual and specificity from, you know, the person at the receiving end of the ism. So that's what all isms do. And so I just think it's a great idea to challenge younger people, any people at any age to imagine themselves 10, 15, 20 years down the road. What am I going to look like? What am I going to feel like? Kirsten Jacobs, Senior Director of Shared Learning Initiatives at Leading Age, who leads the organization's shared learning strategy and provides thought leadership to various audiences, including presenting and delivering technical assistance to leading age members on dementia, person-directed well-being, and diversity, equity, and inclusion, described doing this internal age projection process and then moving from there into actively making choices based on the version of herself that she is evolving into, both personally and professionally. Really being that sort of living into that future, like what is my future older self? And thinking about that as we make these choices and think about the work going forward. Lena Macaroon told me that although, like the rest of us, she contends with her own interjected ageism, challenging her self-directed biases is as important as it is liberating. Those things and those beliefs and those perceptions that we have of what old age is or older age, you know, whether that's, you know, your next birthday being whatever that may be, um, are not really true. And actually, in my own life, that's borne out. I mean, I'm much happier now than I was when I was 25 or 20. And so I guess there's no reason to think that, you know, happiness may not continue. And actually, I'll just end on a few really positive things that I think reinforce that, which is that When we look at like mental health, happiness, satisfaction, older adults do better than younger adults in all of those areas. So I think there's plenty for us to grasp onto to tell us that actually there's many beautiful, wonderful things about getting older and that we just we have to really like build that momentum, the momentum of the experiences, the wisdom, the life force you get as you go through life. I'm not idealizing aging or disparaging youth or attempting to make sweeping generalizations about groups of people. 
Rather, I'm trying to say in a far less eloquent way the same thing Ryan told me during our interview. There's so much to unpack and it's so complicated. It's a constant balancing act because you don't want to go in one way or the other. You don't want to hate aging, but you also don't want to be fixed to your age and say like, that's it. Like, this is my only identity is being this age. You know, there's like a middle ground that I'm constantly having to go to and constantly trying to bring people to because it is basically just acceptance of, of life and the, <laughs> the nature of life. Ageism robs people of agency, autonomy, and personhood. And it robs society of the value that each person stands to contribute to the collective, if they're allowed to do so. Unfortunately, though, many younger and older people are all too often treated as non-entities. What we commonly see happen, and which is absolutely wrong, and does strip someone so much of their autonomy and their ability to kind of move through the world with dignity is that if you lose decision-making capacity for one thing, that means you can't make decisions for anything. We see that happen all the time, even in the medical profession. People misunderstand this frequently. I mean, just a, a simple example of something I see happen all the time that to me is a manifestation of ageism is if an older adult comes to a medical visit with, let's say, their adult daughter who's their caregiver and instead of talking to the older adult, the doctor talks to the daughter and asks the daughter all the questions and looks at the daughter during the whole visit. You'd be so surprised how commonly this happens. And it essentially just erases the personhood of that older adult sitting there. So frequently we just see this diminishing of the older adult. And to me, that is a manifestation of ageism. Kyrie spoke about this same phenomenon at both ends of the age continuum and everywhere in between. Just because you can't, you know, just because driving a car might not be safe for you anymore because of, you know, a combination of things, right? Eyesight, coordination, that doesn't mean that you don't know what time you want to get up in the morning, what you want to eat for breakfast, what schedule works for you, how you want to spend your days, how you want to contribute. Um, and so there is this like sense of if we can't do these certain markers, then all of a sudden we just aren't allowed to make any decisions for ourselves. And I think what gets so sticky about it, too, is it comes from a place of really good intentions. In trying to support those we love, we can superimpose our views and values onto them, telling ourselves we're protecting them when in actuality, what we're really doing is perpetrating prejudice, even if we don't mean to, even if we're trying to be helpful. As you'll hear from our conversation, Kyrie's advice about how to support and empower others gave me a lot of insight about my own past. Guarantee you're going to have the deepest conversations you've ever had with your loved ones if you flip from telling them your opinion to asking them questions to prove or disprove your opinion, which you just keep inside your own head. And I think that would also work very well with children. My mom used me as a single parent until I was 11, and she did a lot of sort of questions-focused parenting mm-hmm. where it was like, well, you know, if you go to bed at this time, how do you think you're going to feel tomorrow? You know, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah I want to do that now, you know. And then she met and married my stepdad who had a very dictatorial relationship with me, you know, and it was like, well, because I said so and I'm the adult. And I was so rebellious. Like I was so yep. angry and so 
so rebellious. And looking back on it now, I, I actually think that, like, asking those questions was such a wise way to get me to insert those internal arbiters of behavior as opposed to, like, these external forces that the minute that the eyes were turned, I just did what I wanted to do. Literally for all humans in your interactions, and obviously, like, with children is a little different because legally they don't yeah. have the same rights as people over 18, right? So there is a distinction over and under 18 in our culture that's really important. And so, yeah, you might get to the point with a child where you're like, okay, like, we're not going to play 100 questions with every decision you want to make. And the more that you can do this, like the question focus, the more interdependent the two of you are going to have and the more you're going to help build like that decision-making capacity. According to Psychology Today, supporting children in making their own choices is one of a parent's most essential tasks. And I can attest that if we erect systems that support people at every age and stage of life, outcomes improve, not only for the individual, but for the collective. We want to make sure that everybody understands that what surrounds us shapes us as we age. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. 
As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. So how do we intentionally create environments that shape aging in ways that support and sustain individuals throughout their lifetime? First, I'd like to take a moment to recognize that not all cultures are ageist, and to reflect on the fact that there is, at the very least, a correlative but possibly causative relationship between an emphasis on individuality and autonomy and ageism. I was on a panel two weeks ago, and someone asked, like, why is the anti-ageism world so white? And I think as a white person, I can't say this for sure. And I can only hear this from from people of color, like from sources of people of color. But as far as I understand, people of color historically have had ways of being intergenerational in a way that the white nuclear family has not in recent history. And I think what scares me is that every day I worry that that lifestyle, that nuclear family ageist lifestyle is getting stronger and stronger in the same way that capitalism is getting stronger, in the same way that authoritarianism and nationalism and all of these forces that I would say are evil, you know, racism, all of these forces. And I'm worried that, for instance, like the knowledge of indigenous elders is being erased. And the knowledge of how to live intergenerationally is being erased. Overwhelmingly, those that work to dismantle ageism told me that desegregating society is essential if we hope to bring about a greater appreciation for how much people have to offer at every age and stage of life. One of the pieces that we even talk about when we talk about our systemic solutions and how we can show value Intergenerational work is certainly a key piece of what we talk about when we talk about some of those systemic solutions. We've seen projects where having older people engaged with young learners or even power college students working with older people and power people um, working together. We see things in universities now. Right. So the the traditional university student is not always someone who's right out of high school and going into university. Right. So how are universities looking at that intergenerational shift that they're experiencing? So you're teaching to the a person who might be 35, 45, 55 at the same time that you're teaching somebody who is 19 or 20 years old. And what does that look like? So solutions like that are certainly important for us in society. And we believe that how you look at that strategy for communications is foundational for many of age-friendly initiatives that you see around the country. And certainly how we recognize this as we are younger, we start to see why it benefits us all as we age, that, that policy solutions for older people benefit us all as we age. 
we do know that there are really beautiful outcomes that can come from intergenerational exchanges. Always intergenerational interaction is by far the best way to undo ageism. And I think we can also apply spending time with people who are different than you by age to race, you know, economic differences, and really spending authentic time with people and really uncovering that we are connected. Liz Jameson, executive director of At Home in Greenwich, a nonprofit membership organization that supports older folks in remaining at home as long as they choose to do so, told me a sweet story about how, as part of At Home in Greenwich's member outreach, they recently had a day where the organization delivered cookies to members. I had a board member, her three kids, and her little dog with a Santa hat on. Every single time she delivered, they all got out of the car, went to the front door. So one of my members called me and said, Lise, I expected a big cookie. I didn't expect all the festivities. <laughs> I just loved it. So anyway, there were festivities. It was getting everyone wore a Santa hat. It was awfully cute. Talia Kaplan told me about the ways in which her relationships with her grandparents regularly enrich her life. She has two grandpas, one who she calls Zadie, the other who she calls Pop-Pop, and two grandmas. I asked her what she calls her grandmas. The grandma that's married to my Zadie, I call grandma, and the other grandma, I call Gigi, which just got a letter from me. My Gigi calls me Supergirl. Really? That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. How often do you spend time with your Gigi? So this is really special, but sometimes she picks me up during school once a week, which only I got to do twice this year. What makes those times so special? Well, we go and get ice cream. She tells me the option, and I get to choose which. What's your favorite kind? I've had birthday cake, and I like that one best, I think. So, Talia, you said you wrote a letter to your Gigi? Like a handwritten letter or like an email? Like Handwritten letter. I made it in school. I was learning about letters and social studies, and I wrote, how are you? I like how you pick me up. Talia has a lot of familial experiences that are enriched by the fact that they are intergenerational. I asked her to tell me about a few. In May or March, it's a mere March, I hanged out my cousin. And the second time that happened, my grandparents come, the grandparents that you know. And that was one of the best times I had. Oh, what was so good about it? What was so great about it? Well, we had pizza, which is yum. And you usually get it on Wednesdays for dinner. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was so good. And another time I had a sleepover with my grandparents in May. Really? What'd you do in the sleepover? We played dominoes. And I walked Yogi. Did you walk Yogi all by yourself? Did you get to hold the leash? Not really, but I still had a nice time. It was a nice, relaxing walk. P. 
people crave meaningful interactions. They want to feel as though they have a role, and in many ways, forcing people into silos or cutting off connections in the many ways we do in our society, from forcing them to leave their homes or mandating retirement or negating their opinions because they're quote-unquote too old or too young or too whatever society deems them to be, is severing so much of the value that comes from interdependence throughout the lifespan. But when we see intergenerational interactions and structures of social and community support that empower people, we see increased agency and self-actualization. That's true with both younger and older people. For the most part, older folks want to stay living in their homes as long as possible. And, you know, the kids will say, oh, you know, maybe go to an assisted living or move closer or come live with us. And folks get really bombarded with a lot of options, which is a little hard. And some is completely unaffordable and some is not something they want to do. They really usually, like 85 to 90 percent, when AARP, you know, polls people, they want to stay living in the home they know, the neighborhood they love the community they know, they know where everything is, they love, you know, the library, the beach, you know, they want to stay right where they are. And so this model, which began in Boston, says, okay, so do that. So do that, but join this organization. It's a membership organization. And when you join, you know, help us be vibrant and help us, in fact, help people stay living in their homes as long as possible. Social programs, we have a vendor list of electricians, painters, you know, whatever you need. We do some driving, and I'm a social worker, so I may have a family meeting. I may raise an alarm about a concern. I may do a safety peek at the house to say, okay, you're going to have your knee done. These stairs are going to be really difficult unless you had double banisters. You know, I talk very practically about the physical layout of the house and how to make things easier. So those are the four things that we provide. We do keep people in their homes longer because we are aware and we help them take care of themselves. So people absolutely positively, I can say without flinching, absolutely people who join the membership are in their homes longer because of our involvement. If what's around us shapes us, we should all be invested in building structures that support ourselves and others in creating and maintaining lifelong networks of intergenerational interdependence. The myriad benefits that come with these types of connections and interactions support all of us as individuals and as a social collective. And not taking an active role in dismantling ageism makes us part of creating and maintaining structures that devalue people below and above certain arbitrary ages. What do you think some people should know? Because this episode... I'm talking to people about the value, like the benefits of spending time with people of all different ages and like older people spending time with younger people and younger people spending time with older people. So what do you think some people should know about that? Like people who are listening, maybe don't spend a lot of time with their grandparents or grandparents who don't spend a lot of time with younger people in their life. Like, what do you think they should know? I think parents should always spend time with their granddaughters or grandsons. Why is it so important? Because then you might turn out having fun or laughing. <laughs> well, I do like having fun and laughing. Yeah, me too. 
The good news is that there's growing awareness of the impact of ageism and a real willingness to dismantle the systems that support it. And we can see this growth in the availability of anti-ageism resources. Old school has grown from being the 70-something resources now to being 200-something resources. There are tools, books, blogs, videos, organizations, and so many more places to expand your knowledge of how to interrupt and disrupt ageism, as well as how to be more age-inclusive. So something I've seen a lot, you know, with the work that's been happening around systemic racism is to read, right? Um, It's a really great way of educating ourselves. There's way fewer books that touch on ageism than books that touch on systemic racism. However, there are some that are really great. I'll just mention one by Louise Aronson called Elderhood that is not per se about ageism, but really does touch on many, many issues of ageism within the book. And so that would be one recommendation. It's a great read. I think it will open people's eyes to many of these issues and prompt some self-reflection. So that's one thing that I can recommend to people as maybe a starting point, because I think you have to kind of be primed before you can kind of start to be more aware of the different issues. The Frameworks Institute, they have great public education materials and kind of public-facing materials that can be really useful. Or for people in leadership positions, they have great resources that folks can use to kind of educate their workplace, to educate their colleagues, um, their institutions, the systems that they work within. So that's another great resource. And then there's phenomenal podcasts, honestly, like this one. Although we really appreciate the shout out, I promise I did not ask her to say that. I also want to point out that Lena's spotlighting of the Frameworks Institute felt especially significant in light of their work with the Gerontological Society of America. Here's Trish D'Antonio again. The Reframing Aging Initiative is um, a long-term social change initiative. It's a communication strategy designed to help improve the public's understanding of aging and what aging means and understand the contributions that older people make in society. Society will transform if ageism is transformed. And wherever you are in your relationship with ageism and with aging, engaging with your biases will improve the quality of your life and might even prolong it. One of the leaders in aging research is Becca Levy, professor of public health at Yale University. She has won numerous awards for her work on aging and was invited to give testimony before the U.S. Senate on the effects of ageism. According to her research, positive attitudes about aging may prolong a person's life expectancy by as much as seven and a half years. Hi listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. 
Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. My invitation to you and to all of us is to engage with ageism so that we can dismantle it. For instance, how do you feel about your current age? Do you value people more or less based on whether they're older or younger than you? What assumptions do you have about age and wisdom or lack thereof? We have to get people to think about that much more as we talk about where that implicit bias might lie. So there's the implicit bias that I have about myself, right? And then there's the implicit bias that others have about me as I age. I asked Teresa about her commitment to combating ageism. To the extent that I've internalized it, I've questioned it, right? Like I've done, oh, right, got it. It's just so important to right, be alert to it internally as well as around you. And yeah, absolutely to push back. One bias I notice within myself is a tendency to see people of all ages through the context of American individualism. My mental narrative goes something like this. Look what that person has accomplished. Aren't they incredible for their age? Or wow, that person's really not where I'd expect them to be. There must be something going on with them. But there is so much more to what makes us who we are. The systems that surround us either stifle our potential or enable us to show up authentically, which means we often end up outperforming other people's expectations. And so there's the person who can do the skydiving at 80 years old. That's fantastic. The attorney who still goes to work at 92 years old, right? And that's great that she still goes to work at 92. But what's around her that shapes her so that she can still go to work at 92 years old? First of all, her office has policies that allow someone to still work when they're 92 years old. She has the transportation to get there. So there's a lot more that surrounds us to make that be successful. And it's not an individualist achievement. Not to take away from that person specifically, but when you try to think about ageism and how people digest that, these are the things that really come into play. Speaking of play, Talia was telling me about some of the various ways she plays, including what she does at recess. At school, there's three playgrounds that I, and so when they have outdoor recess, I usually play on those three playgrounds. And on the first playground, there was this bar, which is good for hang, holding out to friends more. I practice that a lot, and, and I'm getting really good at it. Really? How do you practice? I feel like my hands would always get, like, slippy, and then I'd fall. So how do you do it? Once I get a little situated, I kick my feet, and I do not fall. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my gosh. Situated, that is such a great word. I love that word. Do people tell you a lot that you have a really great vocabulary, Talia? Not really, but I know vocabulary means have a lot, know a lot of words. Yeah, it does. That's exactly what it means. You know a lot of words. What's your favorite word? Do you have a favorite word? Not really, but I do like the word love. That's a good word. It is. The feeling of love, I think, is even better than the word, huh? <laughs> yeah. 
by becoming actively invested in age-inclusive, age-full, intergenerational living, we can generate more love, more connections, more enduring bonds that support not only the more vulnerable members of society, but everyone, including our current and future selves. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Ryan Backer, Lena Macaroon, Trish D'Antonio, Kirsten Jacobs, Mia Mullen, Teresa Reed, Kyrie Carpenter, Lise Jameson, and Talia Kaplan. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.